Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Around the world, democracies are on the back foot. For years, experts, commentators, politicians, and other practitioners and observers have discussed a global democratic recession. Several countries are of interest as case studies in decline, but the United States stands out. As an established democracy and global hegemon, the retreat of American democracy, always flawed but increasingly so of late, threatens the world, and particularly its continental neighbors, including Canada. While Canada cannot be fully independent in a globalized world, particularly as we share a border with the United States, we must consider ways of preserving, indeed expanding, our democracy. But that might be difficult if our largest trading and security partner falls apart. With that concern in mind, we ask, can Canada protect itself from American democratic decline? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Rob Goodman, Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University and author of the new book, Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Let's start by talking about myths, uh, because I, this is absolutely core to the book, but absolutely core to democratic reality, to the reality of nation states. And these days, in this moment, perhaps more salient than ever. So as you say in the book, we're not talking about falsehoods. We're talking about stories we tell ourselves, founding stories, stories that unite. What are the core Canadian and American myths? Well, I think one of the core Canadian myths I try to focus on in the book is the idea of multiplicity or multiple foundings. Uh, the idea that the story, that at least as I gather as a relative newcomer to Canada, but as someone who has kids in public schools, who's learned a lot about this country's public culture, who teaches about Canadian politics to undergrads, um, what I find really distinctive uh, about the Canadian myth coming from the U.S. is the idea that the story that a critical mass, I think, of Canadians try to tell themselves is that there isn't a real people here, there isn't a distinct founding people here, there isn't one people on a mission from God uh, to exert manifest destiny over a continent or to set up a certain kind of political society. It's always been multiple political societies, multiple claims, multiple histories, multiple conflicting stories. You know, So in the sense that I think there's a Canadian myth, it's a myth that draws together many different founding myths and many different founding stories, you know, both the uh, indigenous nations that precede settlement uh, French Canadians, Anglo Canadians, uh, recent immigration to Canada, all of these transformations of Canada a as a place and an idea, I think, contribute to this idea of multiplicity. Uh, the idea that there is not one single founding story or myth that we can celebrate. You know, I think, in contrast, and, and I say this having worked in U.S. politics and, and having worked as a congressional speechwriter, which uh, means doing your fair bit to contribute to American myth making. I think in America, the, the myth is much more unitary. There's the idea about one founding moment centered on uh, one or a handful of founding documents, like the Declaration or the Constitution. You know, There's the idea of a set of founding principles, a people. And I think that there can be an, an inclusive and exclusive idea of understanding what the American people is. And I think uh, to the extent that there are heroes in my book, uh, in the American case, a lot of those heroes are people who have pushed for the most inclusive idea of what it means to be the American people. But I think what Canada has drawn on in the past, and I think what it can continue to draw on as democracy comes under strain, is this idea that there isn't a single Canadian people. And as we look back and think about our history through the framework of this shared story, uh, we can see that there never has been, that, that no one can make that unified claim on the past and the definition of what, what Canada is. And, and the reason I think that connects to our democratic resilience right now is because I see one of the big threats to democracy around the world is right? these versions of, of uh, whether we call it uh, right populism, authoritarian populism, or ethno-nationalism, ideas of saying that, that one people's story, one people's journey, and one people's founding moments are so central to the story of the country as a whole that that gives them some sort of right to rule that in some cases can over uh, overrule and supersede things like uh, voting and the ballot box and constitutional democracy. You know, I think in Canada that there are plenty of people who hold that view, and I certainly don't want to downplay the existence of that kind of ethno-nationalism or, or exclusivity in Canadian political life, because of course it's there. But I do think that there's room for saying that the dominant story 
that gets told by Canadian political culture and institutions and schools is one that's much more comfortable with uh, the messiness of multiplicity. And despite the fact that that makes Canadian politics, in my experience, sometimes extremely frustrating and confusing and unclear, uh, it can also be a democratic saving grace, which is something I've tried to emphasize here. Yeah, I mean, the the Canadian uh, multiplicity is potentially being frayed. I mean, that, that broader acceptance, that broader understanding is under some stress, under some assault. These things sort of tend to happen as material competition. The competition for material resources heats up. I'm thinking about housing, right? We, mm -hmm. we have traditionally uh, turned to say, well, we got to find someone to blame. And in recent years, we said, well, we're going to blame foreigners. Now we're going to blame immigrants. We're going to blame students from abroad, uh, which right. puts a lot of pressure on that. There's been a lot of resistance to that as well. In the United States during the Trump years in particular, we saw that there was perhaps less resistance than you might hope. And as a corollary to all of this, though, it often can tend towards a kind of authoritarian bend. And you mentioned you intimated that a little bit earlier. And I want to turn to the word authoritarianism because you use it in the book to describe elements of American history and the American present. So I'm curious what the origins of authoritarianism in the United States are and what the current manifestation is, because it didn't just arrive in 2016. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think one of the origins in American of American authoritarianism uh, is simply the idea of white supremacy, is simply the idea that for the dominant chunk of American history, you know, in some accounts right up through 1965 and the Voting Rights Act, uh, America wasn't a full democracy because it restricted the franchise and political participation on the basis of race. You know, we, we don't like to think about America and authoritarianism going hand in hand, but you know, taken from the perspective of what we would consider a multiracial democracy, and especially taken from the perspective of the states in the U.S. that operated as single-party authoritarian oligarchies, especially the U.S. South, for much of their history, um, I think there's a lot of justification for seeing those roots of authoritarianism in the American past and in history. It doesn't mean there haven't been really, really important resistances to American authoritarianism, but just that that's part of the story. And I think part of the reason it matters to tell that story is because it can be so confounding in dealing with someone like a Donald Trump um, or anyone else on the far right of American politics, uh, when it just seems as if everything is, is entirely new and unexpected and unpredictable. And I think that's a lot of the advantage that accrued to Trump and the far right of the Republican Party, you know, beginning in 2015, 2016, uh, the, the shock um, of seeing this tendency that seemed new, even if it wasn't, you know, the, the kind of description that Steve Bannon gave of flooding the zone with shit. You know, in a lot of ways, it's not just a media strategy. It's a strategy of you know, paralyzing people with shock and surprise that American politics could have someone in it like Donald Trump or someone like Steve Bannon. You know, what I'm trying to say here is, Oh, that, that shouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, but I think the other thing I want to point out is that what makes America, I, I think, a really difficult case uh, from the perspective of democratic erosion is not just that it has legacies uh, of racial exclusion that go way, way back and are still there in the present. It also has a, a distinctly minoritarian constitutional setup. Uh, it has a setup written uh, by political elites in the 18th century who, for the most part, took a very skeptical attitude towards mass participation and mass democracy and designed a constitution um, that in many ways was explicitly um, and implicitly anti-democratic. So what's really scary to me is the way these tendencies interact. Um, on the one hand, uh, you, you have inherited ideas uh, of an exclusive right to rule by the real American people, you know, the kind of real people as they're defined by Trump and Trumpists. Um, on the other hand, you have institutions in American politics that make it easier for a minority to exercise political power. Um, so when you have that combination, a minority that feels itself uh, embattled and surrounded and yet entitled to rule and capable of ruling at least a good chunk of the time through our undemocratic institutions in America, um, that's a formula for bad news. I, I think that what we've seen in recent American politics and recent American dysfunction and democratic erosion, um, I think is a product of these forces coming together at a really volatile time. And I guess I want Canadians to be aware of some of those deeper historical roots so that we can get over that shock, so that we can 
start saying, okay, we, we accept America might not always be a source of democratic stability uh, as our biggest ally, biggest neighbor, biggest trading partner. And if that's the case, and if it's plausible to think that, uh, how do we how do we move forward? How do we really deal with what that means? And and I don't have all the answers to that, but I guess more than that, I have an attempt to frame this question and problem in a way that can provoke Canadians to think, well, if this is the case, where do we go from here? Yeah, and I want to pick up on this idea of, of America's long history as a flawed democracy. I mean, I, the, this I think myth intersects with this in a really significant way. America is the shining city on a hill. It's the world's foremost democracy. It's one of the world's oldest democracies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of myth-making that goes into that. And then when you start to dig down, you say, well, you know, except for when, you know, Nixon and Watergate and except for uh, the Civil War and except for Father Coughlin and except for Charles Lindbergh and Nazi rallies, except for border skirmishes and uh, violence like, you know, bleeding Kansas and so on. So you start to dig and say, well, actually, it's a long history of anti democracy <laughs> and violence, and that's before you even get into the structural, as you mentioned earlier, uh, disenfranchisement of women, the structural disenfranchisement of black voters and you know, poll taxes and so forth. It's like, oh, right. Okay, well, now we dig into this, and 2016 seems less apparent when you put it in historical context. And, and there's lots of that in Canada, too. I mean, you know, we know that there are cases where indigenous peoples couldn't vote, and, you know, and there, you know, residential schools operate in this country until the 90s. So there, that that history is there. I mean, do you think the myths are designed to to occlude that history? I think they certainly can be, and I think that that's part of my experience. You know, having been in U.S. politics and and contributed to those myths in ways that I'm not always 100 percent proud of when I look back on it. I think the difference is uh, is distance. I think when you live in the U.S., I think this applies to everyone, but I, I found it applying to myself. When, when you participate in American politics, when you expect that your future is tied to the future of American democracy, it's really easy and maybe even sometimes at a hard time like this, psychologically necessary to think of everything as turning out well. Um, one quote that I make a lot of in the book is Barack Obama's um, really one of his favorite turns of phrases that I, that I went in the White House archives and looked up that he, he's used this you know a dozen times or more, the idea of two steps forward, one step back. The idea that despite these setbacks, um, America is on a path of progress to real democracy um, in which these past hurdles will be overcome. And maybe it will. Uh, and maybe that's right. Um, and there are certainly people in America who have been at the forefront of movements to resist the exclusive versions of, of the, the real people and, and American authoritarianism the way we talked about. But I guess when you get some distance and you start to see that, you know, in my case, when you move away and you start to see that, that your future might be bound to the future of some other place, you start to look back at the place you came from and said, well, maybe things aren't going to turn out well and maybe things don't have to turn out well or maybe they will turn out well, but only after a really long and uncertain and difficult struggle that I'm not going to see the end of. Um, and I think that psychological distance isn't maybe what everyone needs, but at least in my case, even as someone who has, I think, some pretty good left credentials, uh, as someone who's been a, a, a social Democrat, as someone who's thought of himself as not just a Democrat, but on the left of the Democratic Party or a critic of the Democratic Party from the left, despite all that, it's really hard to get away from that saturation and political myth that is just part of growing up in America. Um, so I see Canada a little bit differently. For one, I, I do see it as a newcomer, and I, I think I bring to it, I think, the perspective that a lot of immigrants bring to their new countries in which, you know, th th there's something valuable about immigration just in general in that um, if, if immigrants see their countries through a more positive vision that, that comes from contrasting it with what they left, I don't think that that's all for the bad. But at the same time, I don't want anyone to listen to this interview or, or read this book and get the impression that... Canada's the good guy of history, or, or that undemocratic ideas are somehow American by definition and exclusively the property of America, and that Canada's job is to build a wall in some sense and, and, and keep these ideas and tendencies out. I mm -hmm. do think we need to be critical about how American influences affect Canadian politics, but I also think that there's, there's an orientation of the Canadian past that I'm talking about in this book, one that doesn't deny things like, like deep histories of disenfranchisement 
and, and deep histories of, of, and not just histories, but present uh, of settler colonialism and, and dispossession, but also says, are there resources in the Canadian past that help us to build uh, a more democratic future? You know, one thing that I really, I, I loved, and I came across this in a book by uh, Melvin Rogers that recently came out, and I wish I could have used it in this book, but, but sadly it came out after mine. Um, and he was calling attention to something that Frederick Douglass said in his uh, famous speech, uh, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Uh, and what Douglass said was, we have to do it the past only as far as we can make it useful to the present and the future. And I love that line because I think, well, in a sense, that's trying to give um, a summing up to what I was trying to do to the Canadian past in this book, was to make it useful. Was not. I, I don't think you make it useful by by denying and obfuscating and looking for rose-colored glasses, but I think you make it useful by saying, what are the democratic resources in Canada's past? Are they here in the future uh, and the present, and how can we strengthen them? So I think about the idea of, of multiplicity. I think about the idea of multiple foundings. I think about the idea of, of a remarkable openness of immigration. I, I think about the value of uh, parliamentary institutions and, and our kind of Canadian skepticism of political charisma. All these, I think, are things that we can build on. They, they don't guarantee Canada a democratic future any more than, than American myths guarantee a democratic future in the U.S. But I think that the resources that we have to build with here are importantly distinct and different from the resources that exist in American history. And if we don't know them uh, in Canada, I don't think we can build a version of democracy that's really consistent with, uh, with both our history and with where we might be going. And uh, thinking about that, I want to turn to forbearance, because when I was reading this book, I was thinking of, of the book How Democracies Die, and I was thinking mm -hmm. of forbearance, which plays such a role in that, and uh, you know, expanding and, and uh, democracy is one task. It's a massive task. Uh, preserving it is a massive task. Preserving forbearance precedes all of it. And there's this idea that there are things you can do and you can get away with doing them and you can even benefit from doing them, but you really not, uh, you really ought not to do them. And the Trump years was a great study in, in the lack of forbearance. And it reminded me a little bit of the Nixon years uh, when you know, Nixon was challenged to release the tapes. The Supreme Court says you need to release these White House or these tapes. Nixon eventually relents, say, for a couple of, couple of minutes. <laughs> I got yeah. erased <laughs> somehow uh, yeah. because someone accidentally stepped on the wrong pedal. Sure, uh, but but you know the question is well. I said if the Supreme Court had ordered Trump to do something, can we imagine him doing that? Would he exercise the forbearance necessary to preserve democracy? Uh, in Canada, we've prided ourselves on a fairly high degree of forbearance for some time, but there's some concern that that's slipping. And I'm curious um, to what extent you, you, you think forbearance is more prevalent in Canada compared to the United States and whether or not that's changing here. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think that in one regard, you could say that forbearance, I think, um, is more deeply rooted in Canadian politics. And I think that's not a game because Canadians are, are, are kinder or more polite or more forbearing people, although uh, maybe they are. But I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason has to do with, with parliamentary government. And the idea that because parliamentary government uh, concentrates a high degree of power in the executive and the government, and especially in the office of the prime minister, um, that means that the checks on you know the prime minister's ability to get away with whatever he or she wants are, in a lot of ways, you know, centered around things like political pressure, uh, civil society, uh, cultural and and political and social norms had not necessarily a formalized kind of system of checks and balances like they are in American politics. So I think that one thing that parliamentary democracies have tended to promote uh, to the extent that they're functional is this idea that there has to be forbearance on the part of the people in power um, because otherwise there aren't really any kind of checks keeping a parliamentary system fundamentally democratic. And you know, if we think about the uh, Israel, of course, has been in the news so, so much. And I think about the the political crisis that has preceded this foreign policy crisis, I think, which was all about uh, the, the Netanyahu's government's lack of forbearance, the, the, its willingness to undermine an independent judiciary um, simply because it could, you know, because it could effectively get away with it in a way that came down to saving the prime minister's skin from corruption charges. So this is what we see when forbearance goes out the window. So, you know, would forbearance go out of the window in Canadian politics? Um, I think one reason why it might 
is because uh, you, you find both political elites and party bases having more allegiance to the party or to their kind of you know, polarized affiliations than to really impersonal things like Canadian democracy or parliamentary institutions or whatever you want to call them. So, you know, in the book a couple of times, I, I, I kind of uh, I rag on uh, on Polyev and, and the conservatives for being, I think, really dismissive uh, of parliamentary government. Um, you know, it, it could be silly things like Polyev saying uh, he's running for prime minister instead of party leader or, or depicting the liberals and the NDP in a uh, coalition instead of in a confidence and supply agreement. And I know these can be really kind of nerdy terminological things that surely don't matter to an average voter. But I think at the end of the day, part of what they do is chip away at that idea of parliamentary democracy as requiring certain kind of commitments from parliamentary leaders and parties and voters. And I think you can't mobilize the kind of forbearance you need in a parliamentary democracy unless you start from the perspective of voters need to understand what makes this kind of democracy distinct and what it requires from our politicians. And politicians need to know that, or at least stop pretending that they don't know it, because I'm sure they're all kind of individually very smart, and I'm sure they all pass their intro poli-sci classes. It's not about that. It's about the kind of political culture that can give us something that can sometimes, and in at least some cases, supersede the demands of polarization. And I am just as worried as you are that this is a value that uh, Canadian politicians are losing sight of. Yeah, and you know the recent Edelman Trust Barometer, which uh, I follow sort of years a year along with a few others, it had Canada in the sort of danger zone of of growing polarization. And I, one of the distinct things I think that protects Canadian democracy from the worst elements of American democracy is that while we are polarized and while we do have partisans, the partisanship isn't quite as as pronounced and isn't quite as common. And it isn't as deeply and universally identity based as it as it can be for for millions of Americans, at least enough of them to to drive a lot of toxic politics. But that doesn't mean that it can't happen. I mean, you mentioned earlier that Canadians aren't inherently better as human beings. Our institutions are different and arguably better. And I remember thinking years ago, I was talking to folks, I was starting to cover Trump, and. <clears throat> We're going back to some political science, going back to to Juan Linz and so on and so forth, and mm -hmm. this question of, well, you know, why is it that uh, the American presidential system, when exported around the world, works nowhere except for in the United States? And the answer seemed to be, well, it doesn't work there either. Like the presidential <laughs> and, and congressional system didn't work there either. Ultimately, yeah. it's it's been a disaster. Um, so there is an institutional advantage in Canada, but it can be lost. And I want to turn now in the second half to talk about the resources to protect democracy and, and to, to extend democracy in Canada, because you talk about four of them. And I want to go through them one by one, starting with the rejection of the idea of a quote unquote, real Canadian. How, how do we proceed on that? Well, I think we proceed on that by, by linking up what, what, what I earlier said about this idea of the, the myth of multiple foundings or the myth of multiplicity. Um, Again, when I talk about myths as unifying stories, I don't want to suggest that this is the one correct story or that there is no Canadian who's going to disagree with me, because of course there are. We, we saw a bunch of them on uh, uh, in uh, the Ottawa truck blockade just recently, and, and anti-vaxxers and those sorts um, oftentimes march past my window right down the street where I can see them at, at TMU. So I know that there are different political tendencies out there in Canada. But I will say that one thing Canada has going for it is the idea that there is a real Canadian, that that, that real Canadian is defined as a certain kind of people, and, and therefore those real Canadians are entitled to rule through our institutions regardless of how the vote turns out. That's just a lot less plausible when you have an entire province that doesn't accept your entire constitutional framework, or when you have uh, indigenous nations that that precede um, you know, settler forms of government on this continent by, by centuries, if not millennia. Um, and existed as distinct political societies to which Canada has treaty commitments that, that extend well, well, well uh, you know, past uh, the present. So all of these resources, I think, mean that it's less plausible to say there's a real people in Canada that deserves to rule. So I guess what I suggest about how we can mobilize this as a resource is saying, well, if this is something we have going for us, it might make sense to lean into it, to think about the ways in which uh, the idea of multiplicity or no real Canadian people 
is either supported or undermined by our institutions. So I think one way we can support it is, say, by leading into that multinational character of parliament. I, I think it's interesting to me that in, in this parliament, there's, in effect, a de facto quota on uh, parliamentary representation for Quebec, not simply because it's an important province, but because uh, the, the case has been made that those parliamentary seats represent a national minority and a, a distinct pillar of Canadian society that deserves representation on that basis. You know, one thing I, I say in the book, and I'm extending the arguments here of, of Lynn Marchand and other um, uh, Indigenous parliamentarians, is, is that a way to extend those principles would, would be to say uh, that, that Canada might consider adopting measures that are on the ballot right now in Australia and have also been uh, in place in New Zealand for quite some time uh, to have some kind of dedicated quota of Indigenous parliamentary representation, whether that's through a quota system or through distinct writings or, or through another form. Uh, but I also think we need to be on the lookout to threats, on the lookout for threats to this idea of multiplicity. So I think there are, there are a lot. I, I think about you know, the, the Harper government and the idea that in 2015, when it was essentially out of ideas as a, as a governing party, it decided to run on Islamophobia and quote-unquote barbaric cultural practices. I, I think about the uh, Francois Legault government in Quebec um, and, and its version of institutionalized Islamophobia in Bill 21. So these are things that I, I think are really important to mobilize against, not just from the perspective of, of group rights or religious freedom or, or the rights of, of minority peoples, but really from the perspective of Canadian democracy, the way that it affects all of us, whether or not we wear religious symbols and if we live in Quebec, you know, whether or not um, we could ever imagine our neighbors ratting us out to the barbaric cultural practices hotline the way that Stephen Harper liked, whether or not that actually affects us on a day-to-day -day level, it certainly affects us over the long term, all of us, because these are very much the ways in which the claim that certain people are more Canadian than others are entitled to rule. These are the kind of cracks in which they seep into a political system. So I'm very much on alert for these. And also, uh, speaking of alerts, uh, you know, point two is you, we, you argue we need to reject founder worship and political charisma. I think if we're talking about authoritarian extremist movements and even mainstream movements that are deleterious to democracy, the cult of charisma and founder worship are, are part of the, of the threats to the democratic foundation of the country. Uh, obviously, if you look at Trump supporters in the United States, there's a kind of uh, diehard Trump supporters, there's a kind of, of, of charismatic connection and a, and a form of worship that connects him and his followers. So it's sort of almost cultish. Uh, it's not quite the same thing here, save for the fake Queen of Canada, Ramana Didalo. But, um, but there are these, these sort of right-wing authoritarian uh, green shoots of, of charismatic political leadership that are, that are disconcerting. Um, what is the balm? You know, what is the resistance to that kind of rise of founder worship and political charisma? Well, I think one of the bombs is just is is laughter or not taking claims to charisma that seriously. I I think it's a good thing in a sense that that Justin Trudeau's you know charisma has been cut down to size in a sense that that he ran an extraordinary personalist and, and charismatic campaign in 2015. And I'm, I'm I, after all the things I said about Stephen Harper, I'm, I'm glad it was him and not Stephen Harper. And yet at the same time, I don't think that kind of personalism is consistent with the best traditions of democracy. And I think it's appropriate to to laugh at it and cut it down to size, you know, in much the same way that I saw um, uh, indigenous and indigenous aligned protesters uh, going after statues of, of uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, um, especially in the wake of revelations about the, uh, the residential schools. Um, and what I think was really interesting, and this is a thing that I write about, was not just that there were defacements of, of one of the country's founders, if not the preeminent founder and first prime minister. There weren't just defacements of statues all over the country uh, of MacDonald. Um, there was a really, really muted political response to them that really struck me coming from the U.S., where we have enormous battles over things like uh, Confederate statues and monuments to traitors of the country, you know, let alone actual founders, you know, let alone people on the currency. So I think the fact that Canada could both have a constituency for uh, iconoclasm or for defacing icons of the founders 
and also have a political culture that I think was healthy enough to say, uh, maybe that's not our cup of tea, but it is not worth having an entire culture war over. I think that was a sign of health rather than its opposite. You know, if that happened today, maybe things would be a little bit different because I think polarization, especially since COVID has increased. But I, I like that sign. I think it was valuable. You know, let me just say as a, by way of contrast, a way that I don't like to deal with it. Uh, the other day, uh, Hillary Clinton made this comment um, about, you know, in, in line with what you said about uh, Trump being sort of a, a, a cult leader and members of, of the MAGA movement being cult members. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that analysis, but you know, then Clinton went on to say, well, we just need to deprogram these people. We need to get the right ideas in their head. I'm paraphrasing, but but she used the word deprogram as a way of standing in for political persuasion. Well, first of all, that that's just such a an expression of of of, of disregard for people who ought to be persuadable, for people that you might not endorse and you might think are abhorrent, but are nevertheless still part of democratic persuasion. But you know, deprogramming is something that you do to someone. It's not something you do with someone. But but second is this idea that we need to deprogram Trump supporters because this is somehow distinctively aberrant or it's this new scary thing in the history of American democracy. I, I try to say, like, no, it's not. This goes way, way back to the roots of the country in which many of the founding fathers were, were entirely aware of how they were received by by the public, how they'd be received by posterity, very much developed cults of personality around themselves um, because they thought that was part of the scaffolding a new country would need. So if we see a new president come on the scene with a new cult of personality, I don't want Americans to look at this like Hillary Clinton does and say, this is entirely new and scary. Let's deprogram these crazy folks. I want them to say, well, yeah, this is a reflection of how Americans, not all Americans, but a lot of Americans have been doing politics for a long, long time. Yeah, that that reminded me a little bit of the basket of deplorables comment, which was fairly early on in the Trump saga. And I think for a lot of people felt like it was a kind of Democratic Party, capital D Democratic disregard for a lot of people who they weren't speaking to. And incidentally, connected with some critiques of the Clinton campaign that that had not paid attention to working class voters and the Rust Belt and so on, right? So, like, it's very easy to say, well, it's just a bunch of idiots. We need to be deprogrammed that a problem and not say deeper problems with the democracy. So I, I think I think that you're just right on about that point. And I think that what I think is such a good corrective to Clinton's way of thinking about it is something that, that Ida B. Wells wrote about uh, you know, Lynch law in the American South at the turn of the 20th century. And I'm paraphrasing, but but she essentially said, don't look at things like this as these spontaneous outbreaks of violence by uninformed yahoos. Look at these things as calculated and rational political decisions by rational political actors who are using these actions, these these disgusting and deplorable actions, as ways to cement a kind of political rule, as sources of political power. That doesn't mean excusing it. That there's this this idea that if we don't accept Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables, we're making excuses for disenfranchisement or, or racism or white supremacy. I don't think it's that. I, I think that the real engaged and, and radical and transformative voices in American history have said something can be deplorable and rational at the same time. And I re really think that that's something that's missing from a lot of the sort of mainstream resistance liberal discourse on what's gone wrong that I think Clinton embodies so well. Yes, indeed, in which the to some extent the Biden campaign administration has tried to correct for uh, to some success, incidentally. And but which brings me to your third point, which I think is important for the United States and, and extremely important for Canada, which is we need social programs. They're essential for equality. They're essential for democracy. They've been under assault in Canada for years, particularly since the 90s. There's been lots of retrenchment. Uh, there's been a bit of a return in the Trudeau years of these programs, uh, the child benefit, dental care, although we see that they're not universal programs. They tend to be means-tested programs. Yeah. Pharmacare right now is a battleground over exactly that. The NDP demands a, a universal single-payer single program. The liberals are, tend to want to have a stopgap program like the dental plan. Um, how important are social uh, programs to to democracy, and what is it about them that keeps democracy glued together? 
Yeah, I think they're so important. I, th I think that they are they're the material means by which we, we find these sorts of myths plausible. You know, I, I don't think you can just, if, if there's a, a myth or a unifying story about Canada being a functional democracy, um, it's not just something we can say and hope to have happen. It has to have some kind of basis in reality. And I think its basis in reality is that idea of social programs, is that idea of, of powerful public goods. And I think there are a few reasons for this. Um, I think one reason is in line with what you said, that it's through participating in public goods that we practice being small d Democrats, that we practice treating one another as equals. Uh, I, I think about my uh, um, uh, parent council at my school um, that, that brings together folks from the neighborhood who are like me, who are, who are yuppie gentrifiers with PhDs and, and people who live in social housing and share this same public resource. And we have to fight for it. And we have to advocate for ourselves within this resource. So not only does it help us uh, find a common ground that is increasingly disappearing in, in, in a uh, in a society that, that's atomizing and then retreating behind screens. It also says that our common ground is about protecting this collective good, about protecting something to which we have access, regardless of our wealth, our, our race, our background, our immigration status, our income, anything like that. So I think that is of the essence of democracy. But I think part of the other reason it's, it's of the essence of democracy uh, is that have this sort of safety net, having social goods to fall back on really helps us reckon with the ugly parts of history. And, and I think that's a bit of a, uh, that's a bit of a roundabout connection. But I guess the way I try to explain it is this, you know, the things that can hold people together and provide the kind of social cohesion that most people in politics seem to want are either big sweeping stories uh, about national destiny and, and, and greatness and identity and, and goodness and innocence, or they're really concrete things. They're, they're concrete things like being able to say, if I don't figure out a way to effectively coordinate with folks in my neighborhood, my school is going to continue to deteriorate for my kids. They're going to be in classes of 30 kids. My eight-year-old is going to continue to be in a uh, French immersion class without a certified French teacher. Uh, these things are going to keep going unless we can find out a way to coordinate with our neighbors. But the really cool thing is, I think, w when you coordinate in these small ways, when you build up small kinds of solidarity on, on the community level, on the concrete level, I think that substitutes in for a lot of these broad sweeping narratives about kind of national innocence. So when you have a kind of solidarity that's based in sharing public goods together, I think it's a little bit easier to be honest about the ugliness of our past and our present. I think it's a little bit easier to, to grapple honestly with what the Canadian past and present is all about. And by contrast, I think in places where the safety net is even more degraded, and I, I think about the U.S. as a contrast here, um, I think there's a reason that there's such a push to, to ban uh, so-called divisive concepts from schools, uh, to ban teaching about uh, American history, especially the parts about racial oppression. Because if you don't have any kind of public space or public goods to fall back on, the only kind of solidarity you have left is promoting this kind of story of national goodness and innocence. I think that that's destructive both for understanding and improving American democracy, and it's destructive of kind of what little remains of the public sphere of the U.S. So, you know, there, there's a contrast in the extent to which I don't think Canada's public sphere is quite as degraded. It's certainly a good bit degraded. You know, when I try to describe where I think Canada is now, the phrase I came up with is it's a social democracy hanging on by its fingernails. There are still, you know, as you say, some some positive signs like movement on uh, dental care, child care, maybe pharmacare, but certainly not the kind of social democracy Canadians of an early generation have been led to expect. But I think that that's something Canadians have going for them in, in, in a sense, in the sense that there was a stronger safety net here in living memory. It's not entirely a thing of the past. It's a thing that people who vote right now, who organize right now, who go to school meetings right now, can summon up in their memories, in their experiences, and can draw on. And I think that part of what helps to turn that into reality is effective representation on, on the national level. I, I think about you know, the, the, the NDP uh, pushing the, the liberals towards uh, a, a universal 
pharmacare program, which I think kind of uh, any advanced country ought to have. Um, I wish they pushed harder. I know that's what people on the left are always saying, but I, I think that this is a time of tremendous leverage in which if there were election, an election right now, which the NDP could decide on, everyone knows that the liberals will get wiped out. Well, as a party on the left, you, you, you might get wiped out too, but doesn't that give you some degree of leverage over the government? You can't, you make a credible threat to withdraw cooperation. And if that threat's not credible, what, what are you doing um, trying to get policy concessions out of this government if you're just acting as an adjunct at the Liberal Party? So I, I guess what I would like to see is a more aggressive Canadian left recognizing that pushing for things like a renewed social democracy and a renewed social safety net aren't just these sort of niche pocketbook issues or economic issues. They are absolutely and fundamentally democracy issues. They're reconciliation issues. They're grappling with the past issues. They're things that we have to have in place before we can do the kind of valuable things we want to do as a, as a set of peoples and as a country. You can't do these things without some kind of public goods, robust public goods uh, in place. And incidentally, I mean, we're recording this on October 12th, so we're a little bit, by the time it airs, we're going to be behind the news, but the the NDP is meeting this coming weekend, which is to say uh, the 14th, 15th, and there's a grassroots movement within the party to say, do not let the liberals get away without a universal pharmacare program and the deal if they won't go ahead with this. And I know that the NDP has been fighting internally quite hard and, and negotiating uh, in, in vociferous defense of, of a universal single-payer program. So there is that little push from them, but I, I agree with you entirely. I, I certainly would like to see a lot more of it. So I think I agree with that too, but, but I, th I think one thing I would say in addition is the idea that Part of what I think makes the, the current NDP leadership reluctant to push harder and to end the deal is the fear of what kind of conservative government would take power if the deal ended. So on the one hand, I, I'm not sure how justified that is because it seems like they're going to take power no matter what. It, it seems like this is almost an inevitability at this point, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but maybe that's overstated. But, but I think more than that, it just goes to show how having a really scary far-right politics in your country or having the possibility uh, of right authoritarianism or right populism rearing its head affects all parts of the political spectrum. It's not just a question of, oh, we might get a scary government at some point down the road, you know, it's scary to folks like us on the left. Rather, it constricts opportunities for actual progress and actual aggressive policymaking right here in the present because of fear of what kind of reaction that could prompt. So I, I guess one thing that I, I would like the left to think strategically about is not just when it's appropriate to push uh, harder and when it's appropriate to sit still, but also what kind of guardrails and safety rails can we build in to, to provide checks on any kind of future right government that would come to power in Canada? What, what kind of institutions could uh, an NDP liberal deal leave behind to check the power of a future conservative government? Because that means that future conservative governments could be, you know, plenty bad from the left perspective, but not necessarily existentially scary in the same way. It's that kind of long-term thinking about not just planning for the next election, but for planning for the election after the next election, and for planning for what kind of conditions shape not just what is happening with the government in power right now, but what the next conceivable government could do. And I think that's part of thinking about, you know, the, the, the left's mission and calling at this moment in political life not just strengthening social democracy in the present, but building those safeguards, which I think include things like a strong labor movement, to act as checks on the right, even when it's out of power. And I wish the NDP and some people in the liberals who are sympathetic to this point of view would think a little bit more explicitly about that. Makes me think a little bit of, of Dave Barrett, who was the new Democratic Party premier of British Columbia for three years in the 1970s, who one semi unexpectedly and and you know said to his caucus so I think on day one are we here for a good time or a long time and, you and they chose good time and proceeded yeah. to remake the province in a way that uh, it, it's still felt there right and and I think that's a, a pretty important thing to keep in mind for for the new Democrats uh, 
the last point in, in our last couple of minutes here, you note that Canada is often defined in contrast, for instance, contrast in particular to the United States. But you argue the search for identity beyond the U.S. could be a democratic good. How, how so? I think I see this book as fitting into the bigger conversation about Canada's missing foreign policy. Uh, th this idea, which I've seen a lot of Canadian foreign policy experts like, uh, like uh, Kim Richard Nossel, for instance, argue that there isn't a lot of there there when it comes to Canada's foreign policy and standing towards the world. And I think one way in which that manifests itself is this idea of of the relationship with the U.S., um, which is entirely you know, deferential, friendly, neighborly. We we use all sorts of nice euphemisms, I think, mm -hmm. to paper over the fact that, that that the U.S. is in a hegemonic relationship with Canada. That the U.S. is a, by all means, a, a dominant ally, uh, not not quite an ally if it's so dominant, but but a dominant military power in North America and in the world a dominant trading partner, uh, dominant from a, a cultural uh, and social perspective, from a news and media perspective. All these things, I think, um, are threats to Canadian distinctiveness. So I guess where I see Canada's orientation to the world and its foreign policy going as a result of the arguments I'm trying to make is not suggesting that, that Canada can have any kind of meaningful independence in, in foreign policy outside the U.S. because that's simply not going to happen in, in our lifetimes. I think Canada's always going to be in the American orbit. It's always going to uh, have cultural and political connections to the U.S. And, and people like me, even as we continue to live in Canada, will still continue to have family and friends and loved ones in the U.S. And those connections will always be there. But I, I think that to the extent that Canadians define their distinctiveness from the U.S., it can be really easy, especially in, in Anglo-Canada, to reach for things like uh, consumer goods to define that difference, to think of things like the Coffee Crisp Bar or, or Tim Hortons or, or what have you, or, or Roots. And I think I've just named a couple of things or all things that aren't actually owned by Canadian companies anymore. Yeah, but, that's a proud part of our heritage. Yeah, right. right <laughs> it's like a Brazilian hedge fund or something. I know. That's like distinctively Canadian is eating, drinking a Brazilian coffee in your Roots hoodie. But I, so I think that that's one of the obvious problems with that. But I think the other problem is that it kind of presumes that the real sources of, of distinctiveness and that, that matter are just kind of on the economic level. I mean, it suggests that, well, if the real things that matter in terms of distinctiveness are, are economics and consumer goods, then then face the fact that we are dealing with an economy that is uh, an order of magnitude uh, bigger, and there's not really much distinctiveness to be had. I, I guess what I wanted to say is what can inform Canada's foreign policy is that there are other kinds of distinctiveness outside the economic. It can be the distinctiveness of our institutions and our myths and our culture and the way that I've talked about, but it can also be the distinctiveness of, of what we prioritize in foreign policy. I think we ought to prioritize um, high immigration. We ought to prioritize openness to refugees. I think we ought to reconsider the, the safe third country agreement with the U.S. in ways that make Canada a more welcoming country for refugees than the, the U.S. is certainly now uh, under, under Biden, but even more so under Trump and under a the, you know, the next generation of MAGA leaders, I'm sure, won't get any better. So I think that's part of it. I, I think that what Canada has going for it in its search for distinctiveness is, is this kind of what, what's famously described as its middle power status. You know, this idea that Canada's middle power nature, in a sense, is as unwritten a part of its constitution, its, its political makeup, as things like the office of the prime minister, that, that Canada wouldn't have come into existence as an independent country unless there had been a tacit agreement with, with the Americans, that it would never be any kind of great power threat. And that that's just the reality of what it is to be Canadian in foreign policy. But I think the plus side of that is that middle powers can can specialize, can think about ways to deliberately, uh, both, both carefully and intentionally, distinguish themselves and set themselves apart from their allies like the U.S. And I think there are opportunities for that. You know, I think um, there there's no future I can imagine in which Canada and the U.S., won't work together as close allies. But I think what would make Canada uh, a more respected ally and a more independent ally is to think of those places in which, in which it can really establish meaningful differences. I, I mentioned one, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of openness to refugees and immigrants. And I think I also mentioned you know, the idea of, of securing the material basis of democracy, of thinking about the ways in which um, oligarchic wealth around the world, whether it's parked in tax shelters or, or real estate in, in cities, can undermine democracy at an international level. 
and that the Justice Canada took the lead on specific issues in the past that, that certainly didn't sum up everything in the world, but were important. You know, famously, landmines was kind of a, a recent example from the 90s. I don't think there's any reason why Canada couldn't see itself as a country that wanted to specialize in this idea of, of viable resistance to oligarchy, viable resistance to authoritarianism, viable multiracial democracy. If Canada thought about these things as guiding principles for foreign policy, I think we could see ourselves as still inevitably be, being within the U.S. orbit, but being within the U.S. orbit and also at times transcending it, also at times saying that there are principles that are more important to Canadian foreign policy you know, than, than simply keeping on the right side of, of, of the states. That's not going to be the case every single time, especially in times of high political conflict. But I think it's the beginning of, of, of some kind of foreign policy, of some kind of set uh, 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 of principles that orient Canadian foreign policy, policy decisions in tough times and in, in crisis times uh, without simply deferring to, you know, let's keep our heads down and try to be nice and say lots of nice things about friendship and neighborliness. I, I don't think that's working out for us if it ever has worked out for us in the past. Well, I, we, we, well, incidentally, we just did an episode on foreign policy. We could do an entire new episode on foreign policy through this lens. Um, we're going to have to return to it because there's a lot to talk about. But for now, that brings us to time and brings me to my thanks to you for joining. It's been such a fantastic conversation. It's such a great book. I urge people to have a look. Thanks again for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And as always, my thanks also goes out to uh, Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.